I recently heard of a man who was speaking at a financial seminar, and he was sharing his secret of how he had become a multi-millionaire. He said it all started the day that he had bought an apple for five cents. He said, I bought this apple for five cents. I looked at it and I thought, you know, if I clean this thing up, polish it up, maybe I could sell it for more. Took it home, worked it over, went out the next day, and he said he sold it for a dime. He goes, man. So he bought two more apples, you know, for the 10 cents that he had. And he went home and he polished them up and he went out the next day and he sold it for 20, them for 20 cents. And, and, and they did it again. And he bought four apples for the 20 cents. He took them home, polished them up, went back out, and he sold them for 40 cents. And this continued on for a couple of weeks. He says the phone then rang in his home and his wife answered to discover that her father had died leaving them $5 million. He said, and that's how I became a multimillionaire. You know, when I heard the story, I thought, man, a lot of times I'm afraid that too often in life, but we mistakenly believe as Christians that that's how we'll experience spiritual success. We'll go out and we'll begin to work hard, we'll serve in some area, and then we hope for a miraculous phone call that'll just bail us out. You know, ours is a culture that has made it increasingly easier for people to quit when things get difficult. If you're having problems in your marriage, then just quit. I mean, we've made it easy because now all you have to do is cite irreconcilable differences. We just, we just don't get along anymore. If you're having problems financially, you can just file bankruptcy. And by law, they can only hold it against you for seven years. T- tough times at, you know, at work, well, then just quit and go to another job. Or tough times in a church, then just change churches or schools or whatever it is. I mean, wh- wherever it is that we meet and run into any kind of obstacles whatsoever, it is becoming increasingly easier just to throw in the towel. And the problem with that philosophy, that worldly philosophy, is that it flies in the face and directly conflicts with everything that the Bible teaches as far as God's people are concerned. We're to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil in the Lord is not in vain. You know, think about that. You know, steadfast, immovable, always, you know, our toil, the work, the effort that's involved, you know, to fight the good fight, as we'll see in Second Timothy that Paul talks to and, and shares with Timothy, fight the good fight, to keep the faith, to finish the course, uh, to be an overcomer, as we'll read throughout the book of Revelation, to be one who overcomes all of these obstacles, you know, to, to run with endurance, etc. And while such admonitions are very clear throughout the Word of God, equally clear is that not many actually do it. I ran into a gentleman not too long ago, in fact, this past week, and I got into a conversation with him. I knew him from years ago. He had come here to Calvary Church. He and his family were very involved in and active in ministry, came to Kindred, and were involved in a small group. And I hadn't seen him for years and happened to run into him. And I said, you know, how are you doing? He said, man, we're doing great. I said, uh, you know, where, where are you going to church? Where are you plugged in? Whatever. And he goes, man, we're, we're going to uh, Garden Baptist Church. Uh, and, you know, and we talked for a little longer. I said, you know what? I don't know. I mean, where, where's Garden Baptist Church? I'm not familiar with it. Where is that? And he goes, uh, it's in our backyard. It's, it's, it's our garden, man. He said, it's been great. He goes, you know what? There's no politics. There's no hassles with people. You just walk outside there. You open your Bible. And, man, he goes, you know, Garden Baptist Church. You got to try it sometimes. Little did he realize that, you know, I've thought about it quite often. <laughs> You know, and, and so has and so has Timothy. And I'm sure the words of Paul to Timothy was that Garden Baptist Church was looking real good to Timothy about this point in his life. You know, if you stop and think about all the opposition that he was going through, you know, after all, he was being hammered on all fronts 
from the external standpoint, he was being hammered by the persecution that Christians were going and enduring under Nero. After all, that's where Paul found himself when he writes this letter to Timothy. He was imprisoned by Nero and persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ. He was also being hammered from within. Ravenous wolves rose up from among those who were elders, pastors in the local church at Ephesus. And they were having conflict with one another over what was sound doctrine and what was to be taught and what was to be done in the church of God. And so he's getting hammered from the outside. He's getting hammered from within. And I'm thinking to myself that, you know what? Garden Baptists sound pretty good to Timothy right about now. And that's the purpose of Paul's writing to Timothy. Paul writing to Timothy, not on his own volition or his own will, but moved and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. He writes to Timothy and to all God's people in this particular chapter to encourage him and us. He says, fulfill your ministry. You know, don't, don't throw in the towel, don't bag it, don't go to Garden Baptist, you know, don't, don't take that route. Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is never in vain. Don't give up, fight the good fight, run with endurance. All the things that the Word of God tells each one of us who are tempted to join Garden Baptist. See, and as we look at this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see the encouragement by the words that we find here to fulfill our ministry. In this passage, Paul tells Timothy what he must do in order to finish strong and to fulfill the ministry that God had entrusted to him. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting with verse 1, we find these words of encouragement. It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. He said, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. And fulfill your ministry. How can you and I be certain to fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to us? How can you and I be sure that we'll finish strong and we won't become another statistic or casualty of what takes place in the evangelical circles of those who start out strong, but then along the way they end up getting sidetracked and distracted from that which God has called us to do? How can we make sure that we don't become such a casualty? Well, in the first verse, we see that Paul gives this admonition to Timothy and to all of us where he said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. The first thing that we're to do if we're to finish strong and if we're to fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to us is that we must face our accountability before God. To face your accountability before God. It's so important to understand and recognize that each one of us are accountable before God. And nobody will ever be properly motivated to do what God wants them to do until they face their accountability to God. And that's exactly the point that he's making in verse 1. Paul points out the seriousness of Timothy's divine calling where he says that I solemnly charge you. You know, he's saying, I solemnly charge you. This carries the idea of giving a forceful order or a directive. 
Paul used this term a couple of other times when he was talking to Timothy. He used it in 1 Timothy 5.21 and again in 2 Timothy 2.14 where he says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words or argue about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. He's saying don't get sidetracked with all the conversations that can take place. But to preach the word, stick to God's truth, use it as the means by which God can then penetrate the heart of those that he brings in contact with us. He says, I solemnly charge you. He he wants Timothy to understand and he wants us to understand and have our undivided attention by saying, listen, listen up. What I'm about to tell you is, is very serious. I want you to listen and pay attention. I mean, any of us who have ever had children know that there have been many times in our relationship with our kids, it'd be like, listen to, look, look at me, look at me here, over here, look at me. I got something to tell you and I don't want you to miss this. That's what he's saying. He's like, look, look at me, look at me. I don't want you to miss this. All right. Look at me. In fact, my wife does that to me all the time. <laughs> no, no, look over here. No, I'm listening to you. And then I forget. I don't, I don't. What did you say? I don't know. It's like, so, so that's always a good thing to do. What he's saying is very clear. And that is that God, that those whom God has called and obviously gifted to teach and proclaim, interpret the word of God, have the most profound responsibility that the Lord places on any human being. And in fact, in James chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles and want to turn ahead, he says in James chapter 3, James writes these words, inspired by the Spirit of God, he says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. He goes, knowing that as such, we shall incur a stricter judgment. He says, for for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. He's saying, listen up very carefully. Not everybody should be a teacher of the word of God because there's a greater and stricter judgment and accountability. And the reason is very simple. If you go back to 2 Timothy, he's saying that, you know, this teaching is done in the very presence of God. That God holds us accountable and responsible for the words that we share as teachers of the word of God. To make sure that what the message is that God is sharing with us is clearly taught and clearly reflects exactly the will and the heart of God, the Spirit of God. So we don't deviate from it and tell people what they want to hear instead of what God wants them to hear. And that's what he'll talk about here soon where he says that people will accumulate for themselves teachers who will do just the opposite. They will then tell the audience what the audience wants to hear so that they themselves can remain popular as a teacher because, you know, if we start to tell people what God wants them to hear, many times, you know, it goes from preaching to meddling, as I've said many times. It's like, as long as you're preaching, it affects somebody else. Man, I like that truth. But when you start meddling in my life, then you know what? Now we got a problem. So... It's important that we recognize and understand what he's saying is, is that, man, you know what? In the presence of God, in this context, we see an emphasis back to 2 Timothy 4. What he's saying is, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. What he's saying is, is that as you share the word of God with others, never forget that you are accountable to God, specifically Christ Jesus, who has been given judgment the right to judge by God the Father. In John chapter 5, turn back to the Gospel of John, we see that that's exactly what we find here in John 5, where Jesus Christ will be the one who judges the living and the dead. 
Obviously, everything that's done is in the presence of God, the Father, of the Son, and also the Holy Spirit. But specifically relating to judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ has been given the the right to judge all of humanity. In John 5, verse 22, he says, For not even the Father judges anybody, but He has given all judgment to His Son. Again, in 26 and 27, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself, and gave Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. The Lord Jesus Christ was given a name above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He's Lord to the glory of God. And the reason that He's been given the right to judge is because He is the one who shed His blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, uh, applicable to, to, to those who believe in Him, but sufficient for all. Whosoever will call upon the Lord shall be saved. And so when we're talking about judgment here, He's emphasizing the fact that As believers, we have an accountability before God. Even those who are not professionals or paid to preach the word, as we'll see, are still called to proclaim God's truth or herald His truth to those whom God brings into our life. And God, as our witness, watches over and bears witness to what we say, whether it is truth or whether it is a lie. The emphasis is, and and, and the importance is, it's critical to understand that all believers must give account to the Lord Jesus Christ for their life. And to personalize it makes it even more of a fearful thing. I must, and and, and I'm, I'm challenging you to understand, as I must give an account of my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, so must you. Every one of us must give an account to the Lord. You know, it's interesting. We will give an account to, to the Lord for those things that we've done subsequent to being born again. You know, all things are open and laid bare to Him to whom we have to do. It's specifically referring to judgment. Everything. There's nothing hidden from His sight. Solomon, as he looked back on his life, came to the following conclusion as to what was most important. And he said this. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God, obey His commandments, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or bad. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Fear God. If you and I began to recognize and understand that everything that we do is clearly in the sight of our God who sees and knows all. It should cause us to fear doing what's wrong before God. It should cause us to fear, no matter how easy the world makes it for us to quit, we should tremble in fear that we will give an account to God for our actions. I spoke to a friend this week who was at a crossroads in his marriage, and I don't know how many times I've spoke to people about this situation. He's at a crossroads in his marriage. And he doesn't know whether he wants to stay married and remain faithful to his wife and his three children because he's gotten involved in a sexual and moral relationship with another woman. And as I thought about and and looked at what we're talking about here and the truth that's being revealed in the Word of God, you have to ask yourself the question, and that is this. If we really truly understood that there's nothing hidden from the sight of God, would we still be doing the things that we're doing? If we truly understood this truth, that all things are open and laid bare to Him to whom we have to do, 
would we still be doing some of the things that we are doing in the secrecy that we think of our lives? There is no secret hidden from God. Judgment one day. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever man sows, he's going to reap. If we truly understood that, would it not motivate us to do what's right before God? If we truly understood it, would it not motivate us to fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted for us to do? If we truly understood that God sees everything that we do, you and I live under the ever-watchful eye of our God. And it should motivate us to not only do right, but also to do that which God has entrusted to us to do. Every opportunity that we have, we should take full advantage of, knowing fearfully that we must give an account for those opportunities. That's why the Bible says, redeem the time wisely, for the days are evil and the days are short. That we only have a window of opportunity to do the things that God wants us to do. What exactly is that we're doing? Or, you know, are, are we doing what's right before God? Are we doing what's wrong before God? All of it is open before God to whom we have to do. One of my favorite stories is told of two young boys who were forever getting into trouble and uh, disrupting class and school. They were teasing neighborhood children. They were taking things that didn't belong to them. And one day their parents got so fed up and frustrated by all of it that they invited their pastor to come over to their home to talk to these boys about their behavior. Well, one of the things that the pastor thought was if these boys could understand this truth that we're talking about, that nothing is hidden from God, even when their parents don't see and friends don't see and people around them don't see, the things that they're doing, God sees everything. And so he sat them down and he asked them a very simple question. He said, he said, fellows, where is God? And they just sat there like you two guys are sitting there looking at me like, please, I hope you're not talking to me. And they just sat there. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to answer the question. And they asked him again, this time a little bit more forcefully, but but kindly and gently, where's God? And they didn't say anything. And asked, this would be on for a little while. Finally, the pastor got a little bit frustrated and said, where is God? And the older brother grabbed the younger brother by the collar and whispered to him and says, let's get out of here. God's missing. They think we had something to do with it. (laughs) You know, it's like, man, you know, I'm out of here. It's like, you know, where's God? You know, he's everywhere. God is everywhere. He sees everything, both visible and hidden. He will reward even those things that nobody else sees. And he will, he will judge those things that nobody else sees. He will reward the things that are open and visible to all. And yet at the same time, there's nothing hidden from his sight. You know, the Bible clearly teaches Isaiah 57, 15 as an example. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I live in heaven, but I also live with you. In Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, where can I go from your spirit? It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. No matter where I go, you're there. No matter what I do, you see. And so I should be motivated to do that which is right before you. And I should never fear because you are always with me no matter where I go. 
Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Don't worry about it. No matter where you are, I'm with you. No matter what you do, I see. Which is comforting to those who do what's right before God and think somehow that, you know, th- those things will never be noticed. But God is not unjust. He will reward us. He promises. Dr. Fra- Francis Schaeffer put it simply this way. He is the God who is there. He is the God who is there. The God who sees all things and judges them accordingly. One such example is found in Matthew 25. Turn back to Matthew 25 and verse 34. A great example of God seeing all things. Those things which we do that we think, I I don't even know what you're talking about. But God sees and rewards accordingly. And those things which we do and we think, hey, you know what? I'm going to get away with it. No, no, you're not. In Matthew 25, starting with verse 34. It says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it unto me. Notice the obliviousness to the fact that they just did what came natural to them, which was to reach out and meet the needs of other people. It was a demonstration or evidence that God resided in them, that they would show compassion to those who were strangers to them and would reach out and do what was right. They didn't think about it. They never thought about, you know what? Oh, this is great because this is one of the things if I do, God promises to reward me for it. It just became such a natural part of their life that they instantly, when they saw a need, they would reach out and meet it, never thinking whatsoever that someday God would reward them for doing what they thought they should do. And yet at the same time, what he's saying is that, you know what, that didn't go unnoticed. I saw that. And he says in verse 40, and the king will say to them, truly, I say to you, the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. In context, he's referring to those who reached out and helped the children of Israel, the people of Israel during the tribulation period. He will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Yes, Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. And it should be very somber and sober indeed when we understand that you and I have to give an account to him for everything that we do subsequent to becoming a child of God. There's three judgments that's talked about in Scripture. One is the Bema Seat judgment, which we're talking about right now. And that has to do with every believer giving account to, our, for, to, to the Lord for our lives once we came to faith and trust in Christ as our Savior. There's also this judgment, which is the separation of the, the, the goat, from, as we see here, the separation of the sheep from the goats, which has to do with the judgment of the nations, the Gentiles. And then the third one is the great white throne judgment that every unbeliever or non-believer will appear before the great white throne judgment judgment of Christ, where their deeds or their actions will condemn them before God, and they will be eternally judged in a place called the lake of fire. We call it hell, but they will be separated from God for all of eternity, and it will be based on the evidence of their life. And so as we look at these things, we begin to realize that nothing is hidden from his sight. This past week in a Bible study that we were going through, I ran across in the Gospel of John. Uh, If you want to turn with me to John chapter 1 more evidence of the reality that God sees everything 
and knows everything about us. In John chapter 1 and verse 47... We read that Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no gal. What he was saying about Nathanael was, Hey, here's a guy. What you see is what you get. I mean, what you see is what you get. And he said to him, Nathanael said to Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, We don't know what was going on under the fig tree. I know what Jesus said to Nathaniel, that here's an Israelite in whom there is no gal. What you see is what you get. Now, I don't know if Nathaniel was under the fig tree laying there thinking to himself, you know what, one thing you got to like about me is what you see is what you get. You know, somehow or another, whatever was taking place there and whatever Jesus just said to him led Nathaniel to say this in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Whatever was going on, it caused him to realize that Jesus was the God of the universe, the promised Savior of the world, because he knew Nathaniel's very thoughts. In John chapter 4, we see the same thing of, of the woman at the well, where she was approached by Jesus, and Jesus began to reveal to her some things about her life that nobody else knew, and she thought that were secret. In verse 1, when therefore the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea, departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman, therefore, said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan? Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Well, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said you have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman answered to him at that point and said, Sir... I perceive you are a prophet. You know, it's like, uh, I'm thinking, wait, there's something special about you. There's something different about you. And he revealed to him what was different about him to her. He revealed that the one that they had been waiting for, the promised one of God, the Savior of the world, he said, I who am am speaking to you am he. I am he. She went back into town. And she told everyone, you got to come out and meet the one God had promised. 
And the reason I know He's the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, is that He told me everything about my life that I thought I only knew, but only God could know. Surely He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He knew everything about me. Come out and meet Him. God knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. And the beauty of the Word of God is that He still loves us anyway. See, God loved us and demonstrated His love for us, and yet while we were still sinners, He sent Christ to die for each and every one of us. God knows you. I can't think of anything more comforting than this, that God knows me and everything about me and still loves me. Isn't that amazing? He knows me and everything about me and still loves me, and yet He judges me according to those things. And so it says, if you are guilty of sin before God, confess your sins. And He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. To repent and turn from sin and turn back to God. So that you and I don't have to give an account for the fact that we wasted our time not doing the things we should have been doing and got caught up in the things that we should not be doing. It's important to realize that, you know what, Jesus Christ is death on the cross was sufficient to forgive us of all of our sins, past, present, and even future. It is finished. He came to be propitiation or to take away our sin. The problem with sin in the life of the believer is that sin distracts us or sidetracks us from being used to fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to us. We cannot be busy doing the things of God and fulfilling the things that God wants us to do while we're over here slopping with the pigs. You just can't. I praise God that the wrath of God or the judgment of God passes over everyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That you and I will never appear before the great white throne judgment of Christ. But we will appear before the Bema seat of Christ to give an answer for our life of what we've done since we've came to faith in Christ. In 2 Corinthians, we're told in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, that you and I will appear before the Bema seat, judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad. We will give an account. And we should be afraid to have to stand before the Lord and say, basically, I did nothing on your behalf, and you've done everything for me. The words that we long to hear are, well done, good and faithful servant. This judgment will be like, unlike any that you and I have ever experienced. In the courtroom of divine judgment, whether for reward, separation, or condemnation, those three judgments, there will be no arguments, there will be no new evidence to be revealed, there will be no cross-examinations, there will be no excuses, no delays, no witnesses to call on our behalf. There will be no jury of our peers. There will be no appeal. In the most absolute way, that judgment is final. The judge's decision is final. When we stand before our omnipresent and omniscient Lord, He will already know everything that He needs to know about us. And oftentimes, there will be things that we don't even know about ourselves. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
in verses 4 and 5. And it's important that we recognize and understand that even Paul understood one thing about himself. And that is what he thought of himself really doesn't make much difference. What you think of yourself really doesn't make any difference whatsoever. You can think you are just doing a great job for the Lord. But you know what? It doesn't matter what you think. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 4 and 5, that's exactly what Paul's addressing here. He says, I am conscious of nothing against myself. He goes, I examine myself. We're to examine ourselves on a regular basis to make sure, number one, that we're in the faith, to make sure that we're genuinely born again, that we're children of God, based on the biblical standard or definition of one who recognized sin, who repented and turned from sin, responded with faith to the finished work of Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection, received Him as their Savior. That's the biblical definition, not the world's definition of what it means to be a Christian. I go to church, I read a Bible, I give money, I do things, I, whatever. That That is not... God's definition. His definition is, have you recognized that you're a sinner? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That none are righteous, no, not one. On your best day, you fall short of God's standard of perfection. Have you recognized that? Have you repented and turned from sin, turned to God, thrown yourself upon His mercy? Forgive me, Lord, for I am a sinner, a broken and contrite heart God will never despise. I trust and believe that Jesus died in my place on the cross. I believe that He rose again from the dead. And I receive Him today as my Lord and Savior. That is a prayer of a repentant person. That is the standard by which God judges all humanity on whether they are truly born again or not. No other definition is valid. No other definition holds any water. So Paul says, I examine myself first to make sure I'm in the faith, which he recognizes that he is. He met the biblical standard or definition. He says, I am conscious of nothing against myself, that as of this moment in time, there's nothing dirty in my life. There's no sin in my life that I am pursuing. I am clean-hearted, clear conscience before God. Can you make the same claim here today? As you sit and examine yourself, can you claim with a clear conscience before God that, you know what, there's nothing in my life, Lord, There's nothing dirty in my life. There's no sin in my life. I am pure. I am clean from the standard that you have set. If you think that you are, you might want to just ask a very simple question of the Lord. And that is this. Will you reveal to me if there's anything in my life that's not pleasing to you? And I would suggest that before you ask that, you go get a piece of paper and a pencil. No, make it pen because you might try to erase stuff afterwards. Say, no, I don't think I really heard four right. No, I just, no, 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 no. And the point is very simple, that God wants us to know if there's anything that's hindering us in our walk with Him. Paul said, you know what, I, I, there's, God, you haven't revealed anything to me. He says, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Just because I don't know of anything that I'm not guilty of doesn't mean even that I'm acquitted before God. But God will reveal those things to me and also to you. It's important that we recognize and understand if you go... That grammatically speaking, as we look at this text, what he's saying is this. He's about to judge the living and the dead. Meaning that it's imminent. God's judgment of you and I is imminent. It could take place at any time. And the reason that it's imminent is simply this. Because it has to do with his appearing. Notice what he says. 
I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and dead, and by His appearing. The judgment that we're talking about will take place when He appears. And His appearing is imminent, meaning this, when Jesus Christ returns for His people. The Bible, we look at it and we call it rapture, although the word is not found in Scripture, but it's a Latin word that means to be caught up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Read it when you have a chance. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns for those who have repented of sin and have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Bible says that those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up in the air with Him. And there we will be with Him. The judgment or the beam of seed of Christ, that judgment will take place at that time. That's why it says He will judge the living and the dead. And the moment that we are caught up with him, we will be judged and appear before him, the beam of seed of Christ, during that period of time that the Bible refers to as the great tribulation. So as we're looking at the appearing, the whole idea is there is laid up for me, he says in 2 Timothy 4.8, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. He goes to 1 Timothy, says the same thing. Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6, 14. He's saying, you know what? Keep doing what's right because God, the Lord Jesus Christ, could appear at any moment. And then we give an account for those things which we've done in order to be rewarded. Do you realize that today, this very moment of time, even as I'm speaking, the Bible says that his appearance is imminent. It could take place, and Jesus always warned that it will take place in a twinkling of an eye, in 1 Corinthians 15. In a twinkling of an eye, we who are alive will be caught up and we will be changed and we'll be just like him. In a moment, in an instant, it will come to the world as a thief in the night. But at the same time, to God's people, we are prepared that that is the case. And we should live with that in mind. We should live our life with that in mind that at any moment, Jesus Christ could return for his people. John chapter 14 says, I go and prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you that. But the reason I prepare a place is so that you will be with me, and there you will be with me for all of eternity. And that's why he talks about, and his kingdom. Of coming back to establish his kingdom, which will have no end. That you and I will reign together with Christ as he comes back at the end of the great tribulation period. After we've already been judged. And part of that judgment will be to determine how you and I reign with him and what responsibilities that we have. One of the parables he says, and you will be in charge of one city. And you will be in charge of five cities. And you will be in charge of ten cities. It has to do with our reigning with him during the millennial period or the thousand year reign where his kingdom will be established and will have no end. At the end of the millennial period period it will usher in the eternal state and then the bible doesn't tell us anything other than the fact that that state will be for eternity but we're told everything else that we need to know you and i are responsibilities how god will delegate to us how we will reign with him is to be is being determined as we sit here today and as we live this side of the day of the rapture or this side of the day of our death you and i are we are determining Where we fit into reigning with him by our responsible lifestyle today. What responsibility will you have? I ask myself the same thing. It's all based on our faithfulness. He who is faithful in much, a little, I will make him faithful in much. And that is the the whole spiritual principle behind all of the parables that Jesus taught. We live our lives in the presence of God. 
and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. We're to constantly live in light of the fact that he will appear before us. One last thought as it relates to our accountability before God and that is this. When the French sculptor who created the magnificent Statue of Liberty as a gift from his country to the United States, when he created that sculpture, there were no airplanes or helicopters. Yet he made it in such complete detail that even the top of its head was perfectly sculpted. He didn't recognize, nor did he understand that, you know, years later, that literally hundreds of thousands of people would fly above his work and be able to look down on the top of her head. He didn't recognize that. He didn't understand that, but it didn't matter to him anyway because, you know what, there's a biblical principle involved and that's this. Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord, for it's the Lord God whom you serve. Whether any man recognizes anything that you do, it really doesn't matter because we do it in the presence of God who sees and knows everything and will reward us accordingly. Ladies, think about it from the standpoint of being a mom. And all the hours that you spend, which seems to be so thankless in rearing your children and training them in a way that God wants you to. All the diapers that you change, all the garbage that you have to pick up, and even dads that pitch in and help. And you think, man, you know what? Is this really worth it? You can't lose sight of the big picture. Because sometimes the garbage is so piled up so high that you forget and you want to quit. Nehemiah, as he was rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, he got discouraged and said, Man, you know what? I've lost vision of what the wall is going to look like. Right at this point, all I see is all the garbage. And it is piling up. And yet God never wants us to lose sight of the big picture. You know, we've got friends who have younger children. And they're in the middle of going through what Linda and I gratefully and thankfully, and we praise God, have come out the other end of You know, we've gone through that tunnel. We have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And we have come out the other side. You know, when we see pictures of our children as they got married, we see pictures of our children as they're grown and the three of them all kind of, you know, hugging each other. And it's like, these are the same kids that hate each other. They just screamed at each other. He hit me. She did this. I can't stand him. He did that. She put gum in my hair. You know, he hit me, knocked me down the steps, you know, and on and on and on. And you go, man, you know, oh, Lord, will we ever see the day? We've lived to see the day. I've been to the mountain. And I'm telling you right now, if you got little ones at home, don't give up and don't quit. Because the end result is worth it. See... We have to live in light of the fact that, you know what? We can't lose sight of the big picture. Because the devil wants us to buy into the lie that somehow he's more trustworthy than God. And he ain't. He's a liar and he's a murderer from the very beginning. He's the one that set it all in motion. When sin gave birth, it brought forth death. When it was conceived, it brought forth sin, and sin brought forth death. And you know what? And we've all suffered because of that. We have got to get to the point where we stop believing the lie and start believing the truth of the Word of God. That's why next time we get together, you'll understand why Paul says to Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word. Sanctify them, Jesus prayed of God's people. Set them apart for God's purposes. Sanctify them according to your word. 
For your word is truth. And the truth of God will set us free from the lies of the enemy and the consequences that come. Men and women, trust me, but more importantly, trust God when I, as his messenger, say this to you. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. If you sin, you will reap the consequence. If you sow what is right before God, you will reap the reward. Because all of us, as God's people, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that you and I will give an answer for that which we've done in the body, these deeds, so that we will be rewarding according to what he has done, whether it is good or whether it is bad. The truth of the word of God from from the beginning to the end is this. If you choose to do what's right before God, he will bless you. If you choose to do what's wrong before God, you will experience the judgment and consequences that follow. I would encourage you, as I encourage my friend this week, trust God and do what is right. It is never too late to do that which is right before God. Father, thank you for your truth that sets us free from the lies of the world that we live in. The philosophy of quitting because things have got difficult. The philosophy of walking away from our responsibilities as husbands or wives or as parents because things are just, I didn't know I was getting into this. Well, too bad. Because you say that you honor our word and the vows that we make before you. In good times and in bad, for better, for worse, in richer and poorer, in sickness and in health, there's a purpose and a reason why we make the promises that we do and why they're all-inclusive. God, you hold us accountable to our word. You hold us accountable to the things that we do. You see everything. There's nothing hidden from your sight. And God, it's my prayer today that everyone who is here and hears these words understands the simplicity of that truth that you are, as Francis Schaeffer said, the God who is there. You see it all. And God, may it motivate us to do what is right before you. There's nothing hidden from your sight. All things are open and laid bare to him to whom we have to do. There's no secrecy in an office behind closed doors. There's no secrecy on a computer looking at things we shouldn't be looking at or exploring things that aren't right before you. There's no secret relationships hidden from our spouse or anybody else that you don't see. There's nothing secret that's going on that's hidden from those around us who supposedly are there to help us remain accountable to truth and to the word of God. There is nothing secret from your sight. There is no secret when we look at the books and the finances of businesses and how they're conducted in the three and four different sets of books. There's no secret when it comes to how expense accounts are turned in. There's no secret to any of these things. For all are open and laid bare to you, to him we have to do. There's even no secret thoughts that we have. There's no secret meetings that take place behind closed roomed doors. There's no secret agenda that only a handful of people try to drive because you are the God in control of all things. And may because we understand that, may we start living pleasing in your sight. God, if we're guilty here today, may we confess our sin and we thank you and praise you that your word tells us you're faithful and just to forgive us that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we repent and turn from that which we're doing that is wrong and pursue righteousness. Because if we're not pursuing what is right, it will surely, evil will surely overtake us. We cannot be standing still in our walk with you. Because if we are, evil will catch up to us. 
God, it is my prayer that as your word is preached, preach the word in season and out, knowing that there's a day coming where we will accumulate for ourselves teachers who want to tell us what we want to hear instead of being faithful to tell us what we need to know from the word and the mind of God. Lord, we thank you for this time. May this simple truth of knowing that you see everything change the way we live our lives, even of this moment. And we just look forward to the truth of the matter is as we do what's right before you, you will reward us as those who fed those who were hungry, clothed those who were naked, visited those in prison, gave water to those who were thirsty. The very simple acts of life, even those things you will not miss and you will reward us accordingly. And for that, we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.